introducing to Sarah, a South African doing her PhD in the UK. For years, Sarah is a nutritionist working with male rugby teams, and we will hear great stories about becoming a part of the team when you're an evident outsider. We will also talk about the challenges of the global pandemic from a perspective of a single person living far from family and closest friends. Enjoy and share with us your impressions and stories. Hi, and welcome to another episode of She Rocks Global. Uh, today with us, we have Sarah Chandler, who is uh, a dietitian and a nutritioner working in sports, uh, doing her PhD, and she will tell us uh, something more about her. But in the meantime, I just want to let you know that we are recording this uh, episode with Sarah for the second time because she was one of our first guests, actually, and we did, did a live session uh, here in Belgrade. But then we changed the format a little bit, and now Sarah uh, agreed uh, to give us and gift us with another um, Uh, portion of her time uh, to record this and we are so happy because there are so many interesting things she'll be uh, able to talk about. Uh, with us uh, today, apart from Sarah and I, is Maka from Uruguay. She's uh, uh, our co-host. Hi, Maka. How are you, Zoya? How are you, Sarah? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, everybody is enjoying a little bit, uh, a little piece of their weather, uh, which is also interesting part when you are zooming uh, from different uh, locations. Okay, let's uh, dive uh, into the topic and into the conversation with Sarah. So, Sarah, can you first uh, start with telling us something more about uh, yourself? Cool. Well, I guess it's just nice to be welcomed back. Obviously, what I said to you guys the first time wasn't terrible. Um, but in terms of myself, um, yes, I am a registered dietitian. I have been in nutrition now for a number of years. And as you alluded to, I, I took the jump to start my PhD. Uh, when I first met um, you in Belgrade, the PhD was going along nicely and it was summer and it was lovely and I ate all the ice cream and now it's mid-corona and uh, everything has changed. But in terms of, of just nutrition in general, um, I'm very much a, a believer in the power of nutrition and I guess that, that forms quite a big foundation of everything that I do at the moment. So that's probably an easy way of summarizing most of what I do. <laughs> And uh, share with us your location. You are calling in from? So at the moment, I'm in London, in the United Kingdom. Usually my PhD is based up in Leeds. But because of whether it's a, 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 maybe a good thing or a bad thing, there is no more face-to-face -face interaction around my PhD and my teaching, this that I do with that. So I am able to move around a little bit. So some of that's quite good in terms of I can uh, go see somewhere new. And my sister lives here in London, so I've come to see her and her kids and stuff. But um, I guess the bad would be that my country is still not accessible to me, so I can't go back to South Africa and go home. But in terms of other things, like we will obviously take the positives with the negatives and see how far we get. So we jumped straight uh, into this topic, so I'll ask you right away, uh, how are you handling this whole uh, global pandemic? I actually think it's been an interesting conversation uh, with different people, but one thing that has resonated a lot is that I'm allowed to have conflicting emotions at the same time. So I am allowed to be very grateful that I still have a job, that I still have a PhD, that even if it's dramatically paused, um, that I still have a roof over my head and, and food to eat, 
and the very basics that really are fundamental to the way that we live. But I can also then be a little grumpy that I can't go home, that I can't see my family, that my friends are far away, and that that does tend to bother me that human interaction is something that I really enjoy. And now I can't really do that safely and securely without always having to worry about making sure I don't then perpetuate the pandemic and or make somebody else sick. So it's been conflicted. Uh, I think in general, uh, working from home is something that we all thought was going to be wonderful until I realized that in the mornings I tend to do some reading, I catch up on the news, I listen to some podcasts, and then all the interesting things that I've learned in the space of two hours need to tumble out of my head and out of my mouth. And I need to tell someone about these things. And if I am on my own and I am not, don't have any access to a person like that, I tend to get quite congested with all of these different emotions and feelings and thoughts and patterns and ideas. And then um, if you're the first person I speak to in the morning, you tend to get the brunt of that. So I generally encourage people who are not that ready for that uh, to phone me later in the afternoon, <laughs> not okay. to me first thing in the morning. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's one way of summarizing it. Um, it's ups and downs. It's the corona coaster is definitely real. So um, that's probably the easiest uh, thank you for sharing that with us. It's um, I, I think it's a roller coaster for all of us. And uh, one question I always uh, I like to ask people is, um, what would you say is one good thing that you learned or started doing in this pandemic? And what is the the bad thing uh, that? Like the the habit you broke or something, the, the, the something new you did which you don't like. So maybe uh, I guess I can well take the first one. Um, so good things I think that will come out of a pandemic probably is that I, I currently work in an education setup in terms of I'm pursuing higher education, but I also end up teaching as part of that. And I think that education, especially in England and possibly in other places, has developed a bit of a uh, pay for your degree type setup where it's a bit like it's not quite commercial but there's um, negative aspects to how the fee structure works and, and the access to education and the access to knowledge and what we're really seeing is, is that what we already knew 10 years ago which is basically that all knowledge is free if you have access to the internet is it's it's really perpetuating that so now we really can say how do we continue to create value for higher education in relation to what the outcome is and what the output is and what are we actually instilling in the youth that come with the youth, I sound so old, in the youngsters that attend higher education or that we are encouraging to attend higher education. And and so that's, I think it's it's been a very aggressive way of, of reshaping that, but I think it's going to be positive long-term because it's really going to have aggravated that conversation that we probably should have been having a while back. And that was obviously before I started a PhD. So these are new things that I think I would have learned, but I can see that it's been something that's been generating over time. Uh, in terms of negative stuff, um, I have found that I need to figure out how to go from my workday into my non-workday. And before I tried um, not to have wine during the week, <laughs> And now, whether it's an alcohol-free beer, whether it's a beer, whether it's a glass of wine, whether it's something, but there needs to be like a thing at the end of my day. And I try not to obviously then have too much caffeine, so it can't always be coffee. So limited choices. Obviously, someone will say, you can just drink water. But I am a dietitian. I understand. It's just not my choice at that point of the day. 
but but I have found actually that my my pattern of drinking is that maybe I end up drinking the same amount of alcohol over time, but I like five o'clock, six o'clock, whenever it is that my workday ends, I'm like, right, how do I break from here and go to over here and know that my workday is finished and like figure out how to turn my brain off. And I think it's been quite challenging because also a PhD or anyone who's done any further study when you're doing it on top of work or as part of your mature life, you realize that you never really turn off and you never really stop. And then unfortunately, you get into a habit where you work seven days a week, 24-7, and you never, ever stop. And that is why PhD students don't function so well come the end of the day because they just end up either guilting that they're not writing or writing all the time and then having burnout symptoms and et cetera, et cetera. Wow, but that sounds like uh, with the PhD on top of the regular job, you can drink all the time because <laughs> you never work and you well, always work. It's yeah, like... I mean, it, the secret, I think um, it's actually uh, when I, I, I at one point actually shared a flat with uh, your co colleague and co-host, Noabisa Mayema, and she um, watched me uh, have to finish my master's in the flat uh, that we shared. And that was definitely one where we had to, we would have a bottle of wine and we would drink it between the two of us. And I was writing my master's six, 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 while having a glass of wine. And I probably had to delete pretty much half my master's and rewrite it every morning once I'd figured out that that wasn't actually the best strategy. So I don't think they work so well as a dual strategy, but I have found that this idea of earmarking the end of your workday when you work next to your kitchen and you live in your house as a working from home thing is quite challenging and has been quite, I've had to be quite creative with how to get around it. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And I think a lot of people uh, recognize themselves in these uh, stories, especially with this work-life balance, uh, which we are all struggling now when it comes uh, to working from home. Uh, but we talked a little bit about your PhD and obviously uh, you are doing uh, a good job. But what is... Like, I would like for you to talk more about what is the other part of work that you are doing, especially since your uh, surrounding and people you are working with is uh, not a standard one. What would one would look, find uh, a blonde South African uh, lady uh, getting in? So I really like the idea that you just called me blonde. <laughs> yeah, well, probably. It's, it's there, it's there, it's there somewhere. I guess for the record, is I, I have blonde streaks that are natural, which have always been something that I've really enjoyed. And I have one half blonde eyebrow for anyone that's interested. But um, yeah, so I, my working environment is probably uh, not traditional for most people. And I think um, just to expand a bit, um, working in sport as a practitioner is probably the, it's, it's the last, place of an expected gender imbalance so uh, male oh, sports professional sport is dominated by male athletes and male teams and therefore as a female working in those environments I would generally always be one of very few females if not the only one so it can it has um, provided some interesting challenges um, so far and it's it probably um, has ups and downs as well depending on who I'm working with and which setup I'm in um, I do find um, I've done quite a bit of work with adolescent athletes, so it may be like um, 15 to 18-year-old rugby, like youngsters, 
um, where that is very different to then working with the uh, men's team um, and the staff that are associated with that. And also the very big difference between working in developmental. So in academy setups, everything's about developing an athlete. So very different mindset in coaching uh, to what happens in a performance environment where the coaches have a very set mandate around what their outcomes look like for their players. Um, I do tend to do more work in team sports. Um, I think I, I myself am a bit of a team sport person, so it probably suits my personality a little bit. And then, um, but then working with individuals is, you still find quite often the same sort of imbalance in terms of mostly male coaches, mostly male staff. So it it has provided some interesting times in my career so far. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you want me to tell you any stories specifically or... Okay. Yes, <laughs> yes. Not it. Um, so let's think of some examples. Um, so recently with my... And maybe I'll, I'll expand on that academy versus performance environment. So definitely working with um, academy coaches has been really great. I've had very positive working environment with um, people where they genuinely know that nutrition has a role. They think that nutrition is important. And then in terms of my scope of practice and the way that I like to work, um, they generally will back me up and support anything that I choose and that I think is important. And that's been one version or the, the best version of that experience. And then to contrast that, you can go in like working with a men's team um, where the staff and the performance outcomes are very strict but also have very weird um, behaviors that go with it and before you know it you find that there's a member of staff that doesn't agree with me and then contradicts me in front of players and doesn't think that nutrition is what it should be and has no holistic version of it and so and then it sort of again works that idea that maybe I don't know because I don't play rugby so I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a male athlete, I'm not a rugby player, et cetera, et cetera. And then somewhere along there, there ends up being a lot of battle around how I deal with that conflict and then also how I go around the conflicts and also how I can reshape it so that it ends up being that I still give the best of my job to the players so that the players are my main goal in terms of getting them to do what I need them to do from an eating perspective. Um, and they're trying not to let too many of the other factors like influence that that ultimate relationship is the one that I have with the team and their performance, not so much with their staff and the coaching setup, which is usually where the, as I said, that male dominated glitchiness can come in because sometimes older, sometimes quite entrenched, sometimes very limited in, in curiosity and ideas and just have to kind of work around it. But yeah, those are probably the two extremes. Thanks, Sarah, for that story and, and, and for sharing. Um, I, I'm really want to. What would you say to to the to women that are like usually or daily work with male teams? Because I think it's a challenge we all face. We we have a lot of bias and we have naturalized certain uh, ways of of talking to each other or assuming like stuff about gender. Uh, and I think that you. You are you work in a really talented context and background. I would like to to ask you with your experience, what would you recommend to me or to any women that usually works in male dominated uh, scenarios? A good tip to to manage. So it, it, I find it quite difficult because my tip probably contradicts my actual life philosophy. So my life philosophy is, you know, don't change for no one. Do your thing. 
represent yourself, be honest, be authentic, the whole thing. All the nice things that we really want to promote around standing up for yourself and being a strong human being. But um, when it comes to working in male sports, and I'm, I would really say that I do think this is quite unique because, again, um, a sporting team has a very specific outcome. So they all work towards the same outcome. So in a male team in a business setup, you might find that the outcomes are more diverse. So there's multiple performance outcomes, which maybe makes it a bit different. But so the, the idea is you've got to be part of the team. So what I used to do is when I, when I started working in sports, I used to work at the Sports Science Institute in Cape Town, and it's a very diverse building. So there's lots of sports, lots of people, lots of professions, students. There. So I started a thing called Frock Friday. So every Friday I used to wear one of my dresses because I just used to realize that none of my dresses used to get worn because I work in a sports building where tracksuit pants and sports athletic gear is prioritized. So I got used to that and I really enjoyed it and it actually ended up being quite a big joke in the building, not in the building, but like on my floor with my colleagues because then if I didn't wear a dress on a Friday, they used to be like, where's your dress? Like it's Friday. Everywhere time you wear a dress, we know that it's Friday. Um, and when I got to, to the UK to start my work, now because it was centralized to a very specific team, there was almost absolutely no way that I could wear a dress on a Friday and get away with it in terms of going into now a completely 95% dominated male building in rugby gear playing rugby things. So I had to adapt that. And this is maybe where I said con this conflicts with my personal philosophy is I put on the team kits. So oversized tracksuit pants, a really big tenty type athletic top gear thing that I got given because they don't have female sizes. And I walk in looking like everyone else. And initially, sort of from a visual perspective, I am now part of the team. And I go to the team meeting and I make the coffee. Well, no, as in I make myself coffee. Sorry, I definitely do not make other people coffee. And we, we work within that. I don't wear a lot of makeup. I am generally plain Jane in the corner, if that makes sense, until it's time for nutrition. Then obviously it's my turn. But so, so that would be my tip in terms of, or as I say, my tip is the wrong tip. I'm saying integrate and then, but what I did find and what this allowed me to do is that once I dress like the team and once I'm part of the team, then I'm free to do my job. So by sacrificing the one component of my philosophy on wearing a dress every Friday, I could now um, move into a space where I was freely then allowed to do as much of my job as I wanted to. So I got a benefit on the other side of it, which in a team situation, in a team sport, it's like I'm quite everyone sacrifices something to be part of the team. Therefore, this is the team spirit, blah, blah, blah. So it does actually work like that, but it was quite um, somewhat horrifying when once again, my dresses were in the cupboard sitting there waiting. <laughs> and they just had to no, wait until I, I wasn't uh, on, at work. I love the, this story, especially because what we are trying also to do through these conversations uh, is to showcase that there are so many different ways to achieve something and uh, there are so many different things that we want to achieve. And I like this story of yours because it's um, showcasing that also one person can use different tools in different situations uh, and that's okay. So thank you for sharing. 
and I hope uh, you will find the time to buy to wear uh, the dresses and hopefully you're not buying too many of them <laughs> no the, the dresses will find their way out of the cupboard eventually it's just it's now it's more weather dependent than anything exactly exactly um so let's move on a little bit uh, from from directly working and your work and let's move to this question we talked about the things that are moving you what you like doing what you are doing but what is frightening you right now what what concerns you apart from the pandemic yes possible Um, I think what frightens me a little bit is that probably the same way I said that technology is going to really change higher education is that at the moment technology is really changing the face of things that are should be done between human beings. So I'm really worried that over time our our use of apps, tools, uh, anything online in the online space will will rip partially replace our value that we place on people's expertise and people's understanding and people's empathy. So being a, a dietitian and I used to work in public health, I've obviously worked with a range of, of ages and, and types of people. And I think that empathy has become something that's very important in my work, even if I don't have to use it all the time in terms of rugby is all about the toughness, etc. But um, with, with knowing that, that, I get the best results when I can talk to a person and when I can really work closely with them. It's very scary to think that a person will eventually think that an app will do what I do better. And that that's kind of an uncomfortable feeling because it's kind of like, well, then human beings are going to be, well, my, my skill set and my, all the things I've learned over time and how I really enjoy doing my job will become irrelevant because somebody will find a way to replace it with an app. And, and I still firmly believe that, that, it won't happen completely but then at the same time if the pie gets smaller in terms of the amount of people who can work with people directly is that then it becomes more expensive and less accessible to people promoting the fact that everyone can see a dietitian and improve their nutrition and it becomes again part of the preventive health pro-health movement instead of the uh, curative idea of things is that it becomes something that's a privilege for a few people who get to do it because they can. And then that, again, comes with all these mixed emotions about the fact that that's not really my fundamental philosophy on nutrition in the first place. Yeah, that scares the crap out of me. Thank you for that. And to, to go, go on with some personal stuff, who helped you get here? I've, I've had a few mentors. Um, unfortunately, probably fewer than I should have had. I strongly, strongly have realized that the whether it's my personality or whether it's just the way that we work, um, mentoring in a, a job such as nutrition and dietetics really is very important. Um, I started off first in public health with absolutely no one to tell me how this was supposed to work. What was worse is that I was working in a rural hospital in my third language that I didn't know yet and had no insight into how it was all going to fit together and no one to give any guidance on it. So my, my community service dietetics here was incredibly hard for me because I felt like I was useless <laughs> and I couldn't do my job. I couldn't help anyone because I couldn't communicate with them properly. And there was no system to help me get any better at any of it. 
and no one to help me figure out how to do that. So that was very much a, that was a tough, tough year. And then moving, and actually I ended up leaving dietetics for nearly three years after that. (laughs) And I, and I I went to go do other things. I went to go teach like children how to speak English in South Korea. And then I went traveling and, you know, I did other things that I really absolutely enjoyed, but I did know that I had to come back and do it again. And, um, yeah, it was better the second time around, but also um, still uh, did not have any mentoring and anyone to help give direction. And that's, I think, why I found my way back into education, actually. Anyway, and, and, and but then third time around, I managed to find a, a person uh, whose practice I ended up working in in Cape Town. Her name is Shelley Meltzer. And a, as a dietitian working in sports in South Africa, it was an absolute uh, gift to me in terms of mentoring. I gave a lot of insight into how to create value for your profession, our profession, how to look at um, the yes, no, when you say yes, when you say no, in terms of of just giving too much to people because they ask nicely, (laughs) which is a problem. How to charge for my services, which of course is still a little bit of a perhaps problem. But uh, yeah, so that was really great. And then unfortunately moving to the UK is is that there've been aspects of people that I've, I've, got who can mentor me but they are it's it's fractioned it's no one single person anymore and I actually think that in terms of of going to networks or doing things outside of nutrition has then actually helped a bit more so I you know have some really interesting friends (laughs) who do some really cool stuff and then they you know either they tell you off when you ask them about something where they're like, no, that doesn't sound like you should be doing that. Sounds like you met, what about this? Or very interesting conversations. Um, you know, even things like this, like doing a podcast is originally would have been quite challenging. And then you get a little used to the idea and you think, okay, it's not as intimidating as I thought, but because I, you know, somebody said, no, but I really think you should do that and help you and push you and challenge you a little. So yeah, from an, from a work perspective, um, I was very lucky when I found, Shelley in Cape Town, but I think since then I've had to maybe find sources of, of inspiration outside of my profession and try and use, use figure it out a little bit more independently. I like uh, it. It's also, it's usually, there is always one person and that one person is when we are very young and just entering the field. But then what I see is a lot of other people uh, giving pieces uh, to 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 help us grow in those specific pl- on those specific uh, places. So so again, uh, it's good to hear, and it's also a good reminder to all of us that uh, to remember who helped us and to then uh, have that uh, insight to help others when our time comes. It's actually been something that now I feel is quite important with. Before, I probably didn't think I was further uh, far enough along in my career to be a mentor to anyone else. But seeing the way that people are moving out of dietetics or nutrition into the sporting context without any any checks and balances, role modeling, reminders, uh, guidance at all, and any like it does bother like so now I've, I feel like I try to step into that space if it's available, but there's not really many structures, and unfortunately the people that you deal with sometimes they have to be quite um, awake, I guess, to see that they could benefit from having a mentor, whereas a, a lot of them sometimes just see competition. So they just think that 
anyone who's there before them needs to be ousted, basically, which is quite sad, rather than this collaborative component. Sara, sorry, let me jump in. Mm. Definitely, you, you must be a mentor, and, and you don't need a structure. You can uh, tell people you're available. No, really, and I'm serious about this. I love your story. I think we should talk with Jelly, for example, because you tap on topics that are so important. Learning how to say no, I'm, I'm struggling with that. I, I've been struggling with that like the last 15 yeah. years. Uh, understanding your value, being empath empathetic, like really, I think, and, and this is personal, but I think especially among females, like it's challenging and we need to support each other, but especially to create safe spaces where we can have this kind of conversation. We, 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 you are a role model already. That's why we are talking to you because we <laughs> admire you. We feel that you have a lot of to share and you can inspire other people by your real story of, of success. So uh, my first invitation is go ahead and talk to people, offer your mentorship because another thing, and, and I will say this as a mentor, I learned much more mentoring sometimes than being a mentoree because I learn from the entrepreneurs I work with. So please go ahead and do that. I have Thank an idea. You. Once we publish Sarah's episode, this can be an open invite for people to call and ask for your mentorship. And yeah. then let's see where it takes you. It's uh, Sounds like a great it's idea. A fun <laughs> awesome. <laughs> To me, I would say it sounds uh, like a great place to wrap up uh, this conversation as well, because I think we we touched so many topics, and I can't believe, in a way, and I think it will it, it's uh, unusual for you that you were talking for 30 minutes without actually talking about nutrition <laughs> and why it's important and how we should, and I think around that topic there's a whole layer of things where we can uh, we, we could discuss but i hope uh, you will discuss uh, a lot of them um, in some other uh, podcasts uh, shows uh, and i would also use this opportunity to invite people to follow you uh, on social media i follow you on instagram and you share amazing uh, <laughs> uh, nut nutrition based facts Uh, which I think we all need uh, uh, a lot uh, right now. And okay. just just to finish the talk, is there something that you, because you listened to our previous episodes, is there something you wish uh, to share and that we didn't ask you? Uh, probably no, probably not. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I guess it's it's just that. In the, in the world of science and where science is at at the moment in terms of the uh, try, try not to politicize science if you can so anyone who's just thinking about how to judge scientific information especially during this pandemic whether it's nutrition information stuff about vaccines so any of that stuff just trying really hard to take the politics out of it because if we, if we hopefully we all agree that health is political but it shouldn't be and just to try keep sift like try you know just keep it it, it worry that's probably i mean that's another whole conversation on its own around um why exactly. we should why we should not politicize health but if if people are listening and if they if they feel that they want to make more of their health and if they really do it's just to remember that just try not to let the politics interfere thank you. you wanted to jump in Yeah, yeah. I want to say we are wrapping up with an amazing woman that she's a mentor 
and I, 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 that's what I want to take. And, and this thing about uh, keeping it separate, politics from health and science, I think it's really interesting. Uh, Sara, I would like to ask you to last question. What makes you rock? Uh, probably that I have really, I've really discovered who makes me better. And so the things that in my life that make me better, I keep those things and I'm trying to get really more refined at letting the other things go. And hopefully that that will continue and that it's collaborative and it's just not, it's, there's never a single, it's not, no one, I, no one walks by themselves. So just keep, keep those people close to you that make you better. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening this uh, uh, this episode. Uh, share us your thoughts and comments. And of course, uh, if you want to reach out uh, to Sarah for mentoring, you can use our Shiroks Global channels or reach to her directly. Thank you and uh, stay in touch, keep safe, and hopefully this all will soon be over. She Rocks Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Macarena Botta, Nwabi Samayema, and Zoya Kukic. This season of She Rocks Global was recorded in the American Corner Cape Town, which is also where you will find our sound engineer, Tikrai Gekana. Theme music for this podcast is composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannah Sagasa from Germany. Mixing engineer is T Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from around the world. Should you be or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please contact us through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter channels. Handle She Rocks Global. Hashtag She Rocks. Until next time, keep rocking.